nine films into his directorial career now, and it is clear that the guy only operates on two behind-the-scenes wavelengths. He'll either frustrate or bore you to death. Either way, to watch a George Clooney film is to accept a good long nap. The most scathing review of the year comes from Barry Hertz, Globe and Mail. Excellent work by Chris Cody. Find that blurb. It's The Boys in the Boat, which is one of the five films that I'm reviewing this week here on Cinephile. Thanks so much for joining us. We have a great guest today. His name is John Ortiz. He's our wild card, longtime actor, Silver Linings Playbook, Carlito's Way, and he's in the film American Fiction. I'll tell the story in the interview, but this is one of the few things ever, Cody, that is good about social media. I happen to post about American Fiction, how it's one of my favorite films of the year. And somehow he saw it and wrote back and said, thanks so much. I'm a big fan. I go, this can't be the John Ortiz. He says, it is. And I said, you got to come on my podcast because I've never done a podcast before, but here's my publicist information. We had him on. So who's never done a podcast at this point? Yeah, he's in his mid fifties. Like John Ortiz has been around, man. The guy's, his career is pretty impressive. You may not know his name at first glance, but as soon as you see his face, you see his credits, go, oh, this guy's, there must've been a podcast along the way. So I'm thrilled he was with us. He tells, and I'm not, there's no hyperbole. Chris can back this up. An incredible Pacino story from Carlito's Way. It's fantastic. A little long, but he lands it. It lands. But I like that he even sells it by saying it's a little long. And I said, no, you're going to tell it in detail. He's like, okay, I'll tell it to you in full detail. I'm like, all right, De Palma, Pacino, Espresso. You're going to love this story. He's also talks about American fiction and why. Uh, spoiler alert, it's one of my favorite films of the year. This is always one of my favorite episodes of the year beyond the Oscars because I get to unveil my top 10. Cody messaged earlier and said, listen, whenever you want to tape this, and I said, well, I'm still working on my top 10. He goes, all right, if you get done early, I'm, like, oh, I'm, I'm pouring over every word right now, like, like a college student cramming at the last minute. I've got to find the exact word. I know nobody else cares, but I've got to do this exact. <laughs> I, I, was, I was very Samson-esque in the way I was writing this. I'm like, yeah, nobody cares. Dude, just say what you like. like just say Killers of the Fireman. Everyone knows. I'm like, no, no, I have to write this a certain way. So thank you for indulging me. Before we get to that, devastating news came out. We, we record the podcast on Tuesday, and then it posts Wednesday. My wife always likes to be the first on these things, so she likes to tell me when someone dies right away. And she just she completely butchers his name, but just as Brower died. I go, what? And she's like, the guy you love from Homicide. I go, oh, my. God, like I was like, I'm going to need a minute. Like that's, I was like, I have to sit for a second. Andre Brower, who, and it's always interesting, like when an actor dies, what they say, the headline reads, uh, Brooklyn 999 actor and Homicide Life on the Street, beloved actor dies. And I was like, I don't, apologies to Brooklyn 99, which I've seen a few episodes. It's funny. I like Andy Samberg a lot, but I'm like, dude, if you watched Homicide, this is before Chris's time. I'm 45, he's 36. I would. I was a teenager. My teenagers, I would watch Homicide Life on the Street on NBC. And you watched five minutes of that show and you go, this guy's clearly the best actor on TV. And no less than Bill Simmons, who, of course, I love listening to the rewatchables. This was maybe a couple months ago, but someone said, give me an example of how racism impacted actors. And he goes, you know, if you ever watched, and he says, because if you ever watched the show Homicide Life on the Street in the 90s, if you watched Andre Breyer, you go, okay, this guy's the next Denzel. Like he's going to win Oscars one day. He's going to be unbelievable. And he was a great actor, but it's not a name, as evidenced by my wife's butchering of the spelling of his name, that everyone would know right away. If I say Andre Brower's walking down the street, I don't think everyone knows. I think actor people know, obviously. But I'm telling you, man, he was remarkable. Everything he was in. Homicide, he played Frank Pembleton, who was a brilliant detective, caustic, not particularly likable. But Barry Levinson's show, Tom Fontana wrote it, adapted by David Simon. Everyone loves The Wire. David Simon wrote the book Homicide, which became the show, and then later, of course, did The Wire on his own. But apparently he died of lung cancer. had no idea he had been suffering from it. Uh, later earned acclaim of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, but I love his movies as well, including recently me and Cabby discussed Get on the Bus, and we talked about how good Brower is in that movie playing a homophobic actor. 
He was also in Shame on Me, because recently I, I completely torched Samson as usual because my lists are better about war movies. And I did not include Glory, which I was playing to the crowd. And Chris warned me, you don't need to do this, but I was like, no, I got to play to the crowd. So I put Tropic Thunder number one. But if we're being honest, Glory is number one. I mean, that, that's an unbelievable Civil War film with Denzel Washington, Morgan Freeman, Matthew Broderick, Carrie Elwes, and Andre Brower. And if you, again, I'm telling you, man, I know I was talking to Russell the other day. He's not an Oberman fan at all. So he'll he'll go on him just to get me going. But Is he that said public he goes, knowledge. I don't think it's probably not public knowledge, but I don't think he cares. But he says, if you watch Oberman for 30 seconds, you're like, okay, this guy's clearly great at his job. He clearly was born to be a broadcaster. That that's how I feel when I watch Andre Brower. Like this guy was born to be an actor. So I was I was very, very dismayed and saddened to see the news he passed with the age of 61. So my thoughts and prayers to Andre Brower. And over this holiday season, especially it's tough, Brandon, all the holidays. I can't imagine what his wife and family's going through. But I, I'll dial up some homicide for old time's sake. Maybe I'll watch Glory as well and appreciate what a great actor he was. All right. Without further ado, first things I have a lot to say. It's all written. Well, I didn't even I didn't review what we have coming out. Let's do that really quickly. There's no old movies. I have too much other stuff. And John Ortiz is like 45 minutes. New movies. The Iron Claw, The Boys in the Boat from George Clooney, Leave the World Behind, my man Mahershala Ali, Ethan Hawke, Julia Roberts on Netflix, Ferrari, Michael Mann's film, which is coming out Christmas Day. And the zone of interest. I mean, Critics' Choice Association coming up huge. None of these movies are out. I have all the screeners and DVDs. As you'll hear John Ortiz say, he was very surprised I'd already seen American Fiction. How'd that happen? It got to be special how that happened. Honorable mentions Master Gardener. As long as Paul Schrader keeps making the same movies, sign me up. A lonely, haunted man writes in his diary about his new life, trying to keep the past from bubbling up to the surface again. Joel Edgerton plays the lead, and Sigourney Weaver is an amusing foil. God damn it, Sweet Pea. Most Schrader movies head to an inevitable violent climax, but Master Gardner surprisingly strikes a chord of love. Next up, just to make sure Cody's engaged, Somewhere in Queens. The directorial debut of Ray Romano doesn't mean he's actually the next Woody Allen, but his first feature is smart, witty, and wise. Semi-autobiographical in the story of an Italian-American father desperate to see his son get a college basketball scholarship, so much so that he begs his girlfriend to stay with him even after she's dumped his son and broken his heart. Romano is excellent in the dramedy, as is the supporting cast of Sebastian Maniscalco, cinephile regular, Laurie Metcalf, and the always fetching Jennifer Esposito. Notable quote, and you can listen to the, his interview with us, he's outside trying to talk his dick off a ledge somewhere in Queens. Napoleon, you think you're special because you have boats. Ridley Scott's Napoleon may play fast and loose with the facts, but it's a rousing epic of the Frenchman played by Joaquin Phoenix, who was successful at war, vanquishing his enemies, but had much less success taming his beloved Josephine, played by a wonderful actress as well. Twisted with an impish sense of humor. Vanessa Kirby's the actress. Twisted with an impish sense of humor, the movie features action sequences, including Waterloo, the way only a master craftsman like Scott can do. And don't do what I did, folks. Don't watch it on your phone. Watch it in the theater. Dream Scenario. Clearly inspired by the gonzo imagination of Charlie Kaufman, Dream Scenario sputters at the finish line, but gives Nicolas Cage an inspired performance with shades of his unforgettable work in Kaufman's adaptation. A random, nondescript man starts showing up in people's dreams. A cause celebrity even enjoying the potential fancy of a much younger, adoring fan in one of the funniest scenes of the year soon turns into a nightmare when he haunts those same dreams. A satirical take on cancel culture and just plain abstract fun. And our last honorable mention, John Wick 4. Enjoy the orgiastic action porn of this latest installment of John Wick. Elaborate long takes, gorgeously photographed, and intricate fight choreography lend itself in this remarkable action film, which allows Keanu Reeves and the always excellent Ian McShane to go out with a bang. 10. Anatomy of a Fall. A courtroom drama that I wish ended with more oomph. It's nonetheless my favorite foreign film of the year. 
Sandra Hewler is entirely committed as a woman under trial for the murder of her husband. You won't be able to get 50 cents PIMP out of your head and a strong debate movie as you and your significant other can debate how nefarious and culpable the heroine's actions really are and her relationship with her blind son. The Palme d'Or winner at Cannes for good reason. Anatomy of a Fall. Nine. Air. A shame Ben Affleck hasn't directed more movies. He can make a movie about a show compelling. Even a movie about a shoe. That was a typo. Matt Damon stars as Sonny Vaccaro, who has to save fledgling Nike. Imagine that by signing Michael Jordan, relying heavily on an 80s soundtrack and choices that reflect the era, including Phil Knight's purple Porsche. I get me one of those. Air is pulpy commercial entertainment that culminates in Damon's triumphant monologue about being built up and torn down, which still resonates for all celebrities today. Number nine is Air. Eight. Iron Claw. The most unexpected discovery of the year. Sean Durkin's wrestling drama packs a devastating punch as glories in the ring are sadly matched outside of it for this cursed wrestling family. It features nothing less than the performance of Zac Efron's career. More in my former review coming soon. Number eight, wrestling drama, The Iron Claw. Seven, defending my life. Behold the hilarity of the true original Albert Brooks, who gets the 90-minute documentary treatment, not nearly enough, from his longtime comedic friend Rob Reiner. Stories from his father actually killing on stage to his many movies to stand up, which influence everyone from Larry David to Chris Rock to Jonah Hill. As David Letterman says, if I could have my career Albert's, I'd take Albert's. It's the best documentary of the year. Number seven, Defending My Life. Six, Past Lives. The most haunting would-be romance of the year. Will they? Or won't they? Two childhood friends reunite years later and find attraction and feelings still exist. What could have been a cute 90s rom-com instead is a mature exploration of both love and regret. And how the choices we make impact not only this life, but perhaps the future lives, and yes, even our past lives. A real indie gem from A24 with a pitch-perfect climax that lingers long after the final credits roll and has you examine your own romantic choices. Number six is past lives. Five. Poor things. The Greek bad boy of cinema, Yorgos Lanthimos, goes inside his feverish imagination to unveil a real corker. Frankenstein meets a feminist tale. Almost too weird for its own good, it's a complete original in his hands. And Emma Stone showcases a dazzling commitment to both voice and full body acting. Featuring lots of furious jumping for the tawdry, the grotesque Willem Dafoe. My homeboy, Rami Youssef, making the jump from his show to the big screen and a scene-stealing performance from Mark Ruffalo as a rakish cad. What an absolute dandy. The dance sequences alone are a hoot. Number five is Poor Things. Four. Cord Jefferson establishes himself as a name to be reckoned with as the writer-director delivers the funniest movie of the year. Both highly satirical and a beautiful meditation on grieving and loss, the always marvelous Jeffrey Wright should receive his first Best Actor nomination as a writer named Thelonious, nicknamed Monk for all the jazz fans listening. He can't sell his novel because it's not black enough. So out of frustration, that's right, he writes a novel rooted in black stereotypes, drugs, the hood, single moms, and yes, the N-word. His thrilled agent, the underrated and great John Ortiz coming up later on Cinephile, tells him he's landed a nearly seven-figure deal. Not for the novel he cares about, but the one he wrote about out of spite. Sterling K. Brown is hysterical as his gay brother, and Tracy Ellis Ross tells the best Roe versus Wade joke you could ever fathom. Number four is American fiction. Three. Oppenheimer. 
Christopher Nolan's magnum opus, the uber-talented auteur was inspired to tell the complicated story of Oppenheimer, the father of the atomic bomb. Amazingly, the film grossed nearly a billion dollars worldwide, despite the fact it's a talky, densely plotted biopic of a tragic figure. No less than three Best Actor Oscar winners show up for camera. That's right, Rami Malek, Casey Affleck, and Gary Oldman. Get that crybaby out of here. Oldman's played everyone from Winston Churchill to Harry Truman. And Nolan again shows his craft and finesse in telling a story that engages critics and audiences alike. Most notably, the cinematography and sound design are perfect. The ending is reminiscent of what many consider the greatest movie of all time, Citizen Kane, with a secret finally told. Number three is Oppenheimer. Two, The Holdovers a master class from Paul Giamatti, who seems destined for his first Academy Award nomination for Best Actor and a resounding return to form for multi-hyphenate Alexander Payne. In a role written for him, Giamatti plays Paul Unum, a man who smells like fish, who's ocularly challenged, a curmudgeon and misanthrope with a slew of scathing one-liners who uses keeps his boarding school students online. But when one of the kids is forced to stay at the school over the holidays, the excellent Dominic Sessa, Hunnam undergoes his own personal journey of discovery. Divine Joy Randolph is the heavy favorite to win the Oscar for Best Supporting Actress, and for good reason. Playing a grieving widow, she gives the movie dramatic weight as a woman hard-bitten, twice shy, but still capable of empathy. A bittersweet ending that won't leave a dry eye to any viewer with a heart. Number two, a perfect movie for the holidays. The holdovers. And now Adnan Verk's number one film of 2023. Killers of the Flower Moon. A monumental piece of work from America's greatest living director. Martin Scorsese details the tragic tale of what happened to the Osage in the 1920s as devious white men led a murderous plot enveloped in greed. Marty brings his two favorite leading men to his latest opus, Leonardo DiCaprio with his jutting chin and busted up teeth, an easily gullible moron in love with his wife but also mad about the moolala. Robert De Niro plays his master manipulator of an uncle, proving one of the finest actors of all time can mail it in with Maniscalco and About My Father, but still dial it up to diabolical when need be. And Lily Gladstone is nothing short of a revelation, conveying so much by saying so little. The wife of Leo's Ernest witnessing the sad destruction of her entire community. Jack Fisk's production design, Robbie Robertson's score, Rodrigo Prieto's cinematography, all combined to give Scorsese another instant classic, one which many believe, as do I, it's the best picture of the year. Number one is Killers of the Flower Moon. Hold for applause. Hold Damn for applause. Damn good list. Damn good Do you list. like that list, right? Now, of that list, you saw... I actually what? saw the documentary. I don't even know if I told you this. I did watch the Albert Brooks documentary. Nice. And, and, and I really enjoyed it, man. And I really had no clue. To me, Albert Brooks is the guy from The Scout, like the old yes. guy. Not the old which guy, sadly, but the older which guy. Sadly, by the way, The Scout doesn't even get mentioned in the documentary. No but, love for The Scout. But like these clips, like hearing you talk about it and then seeing these clips of him doing these just completely original, asinine wild like he's a comedian that like i would be into like i love yes. that style of just like i'm gonna do something and it might not work but i don't even give a shit because i'm doing a thing and yeah, it was when just he's taking I his shirt it. off and he's got that whole like that's he's committing to the bit he seemed like <laughs> if i was in my 20s and 30s like at that time i would have he would have been my favorite person in all of entertainment like that's yeah. that's how i was watching that and i'm just like oh this guy's right up my alley that's high praise. I love it. Albert Brooks, Defending My Life. I'm glad that Cody saw it. I'll have you check it out. It's my favorite documentary of the year. Again, John Ortiz is coming up, so let's rifle through a few of these. The Iron Claw, 
The true story of the inseparable Von Erich brothers who made history in the intensely competitive world of professional wrestling in the early 1980s. Sean Durkin's a name you know if you like your indie movies. He wrote and directed it. And as I said in my review there, this is the most unexpected film of the year. I was shocked what an emotional wallop this movie packs. I did not know anything about the Von Erich brothers. Shame on me, the former voice of Monday Night Raw. But it's my favorite sports movie of the year, even better than Air, because of the fact it balances the fact these guys are so focused on the task at hand, which is being successful in the ring, but also being driven by their psychotic father. I'm shocked he's gotten zero Oscar buzz here. Critics' Choice Award nominees, Golden Globe nominees, but Holt McCallany is amazing in this film. He plays Fritz von Erich. I read one review. I think it was, I have to credit who it was. I'll remember in a second. But he was saying shades of J.K. Simmons and Whiplash. I'm like, yeah, strict authoritarian father. And he's just all over his sons. He wants them all to succeed. And the star of the film is Zac Efron playing Kevin Von Eric. I mean, this guy's got an eight pack. Every woman should go watch this film to see him with his shirt off. But I, I had no idea Zac Efron had this kind of dramatic weight. Um, he's excellent in the film as he's got a close relationship with his father. He wants to seek his approval. He wants to be a success in the ring, but he's being, being driven very hard by this dad who's borderline psychotic. Jeremy Allen White is also in the film. Everyone knows him from The Bear, which is a huge hit on Hulu. He plays his brother, Kerry Von Erich. He's also excellent in the film. I shouldn't admit this, but I was close on getting Jeremy Allen White for the pod. I was emailing with A24 and the publicist. I said, seriously, I got to get him in. We were supposed to get him for 10 minutes ago. Couldn't do it. So maybe in the new year we can get him. But uh, regardless... It doesn't dampen my passion for the film. Maura Tierney, I always love. Love her from News Radio. She plays his wife as well. And the other actors are also very, very good. Harris Dickinson plays her brother as well. Young Kevin, Grady Wilson. But powerful film. And it's really a story not just about wrestling and about wrestling drama, but also about brothers. And I think that's where I was most impressed that you could take the story about family, which I get, I'd never heard of. I, mean, I, I grew up in the 80s. I know wrestling. And I'd never known about the Von Erich brothers. I know the Hart family, obviously, out in Calgary. But uh, it's a powerful story. And I, I'm a little surprised it hasn't gotten more buzz as far as the awards concerned. It opens this Friday, December 22nd. Go watch The Iron Claw. Owen Gleiberman's one of my top five favorite film critics. His blurb was amazing. A perfect movie for this moment. Also, David Ehrlich of IndieWire. I can't help but feel as if Durkin's choice to streamline the Von Erich family saga befits the ecstasy of a sport where the line between truth and fiction is body slammed from the top rope a dozen times every match. Ehrlich's a good writer. I don't really understand what he means by that. Karen James, BBC.com. Despite its committed and physically bulked up actors, I got to tell you right now, I mean, these guys look in great shape. Zach Efron, Jeremy Allen White, Harris Dickinson, his three other brothers. The Iron Claw is a flat narrative that spells things out in broad, neat terms. Disagree. Three and a half Maple Leafs. I thought the Iron Claw was excellent. You should go watch it uh, this Friday when it opens in theaters. Not nearly successful. Opening Christmas Day. The Boys in the Boat, George Clooney's new movie. A 1930s set story centered on the University of Washington's rowing team from their Depression-era beginnings to winning gold at the 1936 Berlin Olympics. Again, I try to take Cody's advice, but I said, I've got to watch George Clooney on a late-night talk show. So I watched him with Jimmy Kimmel, still as handsome as ever. He's trying to sell the movie. The one thing that I guess was kind of amusing is it was casting Hitler. Because he goes, you know, how do you, how do you cast Hitler? The good thing is, if you... You get the role, you're going to be in a film directed by George Clooney. The bad news is you're known as the guy who plays Hitler. And he said, so I had all these auditions. People trying to get the Hitler mustache right. And even Kimmel said, I, I was going to actually send in my audition as a Hitler mustache. But this is something, I don't want that ever out there. Like, why is Jimmy Kimmel mimicking Adolf Hitler? And Clooney's like, yeah, it was definitely an issue. So aside from George Clooney's aimless charm, and he's always a very wonderful guest on talk shows, I love that blurb you picked up. As a director, 
I don't think he's bringing much to the table. I love good night and good luck. I talked to Patricia Clarkson last week on the podcast. That's one of my all-time favorites, especially as a guy working in television. But a lot of movies he's directed, Leatherheads, Rick Riley, anyone? I mean, Clooney is not a great director. His success rate is not particularly strong. His most recent film on Netflix didn't do well, which he starred in. So, listen, I know he's saving the world and he's a charming guy, but I would not recommend The Boys in the Boat. I mentioned Joel Edgerton, who's in Master Gardener, one of my honorable mentions of the year. He plays the coach. He's the only actor you'll recognize in the movie. Also, a funny moment, which Kimmel did say to him, he's like, man, you really like these movies about directing a lot of young men. And Clooney's like, what, what are you trying to say here? Like, I was... <laughs> He's got a lot of young guys, shirts off, ripped up. Um, Callum Turner's in it, Peter Guinness, Sam Strink. I don't know any of these guys. My problem with the movie is this. You can predict every single element of it. It's about as square and bland as it predicts. So, you know, It's the kind of way that you sell it as you go, oh, it's a nice family film. You can go on Christmas Day, take your folks to see, i.e. boring, predictable, nothing particularly special. Of all the sports, you and I are as big a sports as you'll meet. A rowing drama? I mean, he does his best with some of the scenes trying to get the rowing, you know, tight shots of the inserts of the rowing and faces are squeamish. They got like these, these bullhorns they put on them. So when you're yelling to the rowers, try to get them going. But I, I got to tell you, even with Clooney's best efforts, I'm out on the boys in the boat. The Facebook movie did rowing well. The social network. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Mm -hmm. If, if, it's, if it's a small element. It made but rowing like seem cool. It was like those silent scenes. Yeah, you're right. There's an element to it. But uh, the boys in the boat should be silenced rather than be enjoyed. I'm giving it one and a half Maple Leafs. Next up, Leave the World Behind. It's currently available on Netflix. One of my guys, Mahershal Ali. When someone says to me, who's the most famous person in your phone? Mahershal Ali. The guy's a two-time Academy Award winner. He's tight with my cousin, Salim. I said, I got to have him on the podcast. I text him. No response. I'm like, Oof. I text him again. I, I sent a screenshot of him on Kimmel. He was awesome. Love John Kimmel. Would love to get you on the pod, my man. See what we can do. I had him on before he won the Oscar for Moonlight. So it's been a while now. Uh, maybe once a year text. Like He has my number. He knows it's me. But now it's silence. I'm like, oh, but he did come through the text. Didn't, it's not going to be on the pod, but he was very gracious. Okay, thank you so much, man. He's like, honestly, I did very limited press, particularly what we're dealing with now in the world at war. I'm like, yep. He's like, I'm just not really there. I did Kimmel because the movie wanted a little bit of pub. It's Netflix, but I'm just, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to respectfully decline because the next one, I'm in. I'm like, all right. So Mahersh Lali coming soon to Cinephile. Still the most famous person in my phone. His movie, though, you should watch. It's about a family's getaway to a luxurious rental home. Takes an ominous turn when a cyber attack knocks out their devices and two strangers appear at their door. If you love Mr. Robot, you'll know the name Sam Esmail. He's the creator of that. He co-wrote this movie as well. Julia Roberts in the movie. Man, how about the star power? Hirsch is a two-time Oscar winner. Julia Roberts is Julia Roberts. And my man, Ethan Hawke, one of my favorite actors, four-time Oscar nominee. I wish the movie could match up to their talents, but I'll leave it at this. It's atmospheric. It's creepy. I feel like this is a common theme when it comes to me and my movies, but I, I just wish for a better ending. I, I, I like the premise of it. What exactly is happening? Are we at war? Wi-Fi is not working. Daughter wants to watch reruns of Friends. You know, how, what would happen in the world right now? The Wi-Fi is down. All of us can't figure out what's going on. You can't turn on the news, can't turn on the TV. Everything's shut down, okay? You start to go for a drive somewhere. Ethan Hawke is met by this weird Spanish woman who's trying to communicate something to him. He's like, I don't speak Spanish. I don't know what you're saying. He looks up, sees a bunch of like red letters coming down from the sky. Uh, Mahershala can't hear from his wife. Not sure if her plane landed. I, I, I love the feeling of foreboding. But when you're making a movie like that, when, for lack of a better term, you're making a disaster movie. What's happening? When you find out what actually happened, 
It's got to be the Big Bang. And I wouldn't quite say this was the Big Bang, in my opinion. I thought the ending was a bit of a letdown after I invested over two hours in the film. Having said that, excellent acting, particularly Mahershala, always outstanding. Julia Roberts playing a very unlikable character. At one point early in the movie, it's kind of funny. She says how much she hates people. I'm not used to seeing her so misanthropic. Uh, Ethan Hawke, always fantastic. I've heard she has actors. some terrible dancing. Yeah, there's one scene. In fact, uh, Kimmel asked Mahershala about that. And he was, her, she was like, listen, I can obviously dance. Come on. Look, look who you're talking to here. He's like, but as the character, I had to kind of awkwardly dance. But yeah, next, they danced to Too Close. Very uh, classic R&B song. Both of their dances are particularly bad, but meant to be. A couple more for you. Ferrari, opening Christmas Day. Set in the summer of 1957 with Enzo Ferrari's auto empire in crisis, the ex-racer turned entrepreneur pushes himself and his drivers to the edge as they launch the Mile Miglia, a treacherous 1,000-mile race across Italy. It's from... A major director, Michael Mann. Heat, let's go. Why isn't this getting any Oscar buzz? Because it's not very good either. I'm giving this two Maple Leafs. Are you kidding me? Leave the world behind two and a half Maple Leafs. Ferrari, two Maple Leafs. Adam Driver, I hate to say it. People love Adam Driver. John Oliver's in love with Adam Driver. Stanzik loves him. I think he's miscast. I didn't particularly buy him as Enzo Ferrari and his very strong Italian accent. He seems to enjoy playing Italians here. How's the Gucci? But... Um, to me, it just wasn't a very compelling story. I blame Troy Kennedy, Martin, and Brock Yates. They wrote the screenplay to this. There is some skillful, nifty racing scenes because it is Michael Mann directing it, but it just wasn't a compelling story to me whatsoever. I would have thought if you're making a story about Ferrari, there has to be a lot of meat on the bone. Instead, you got Penelope Cruz overacting. She plays his wife who knows that he's cheating on her. She plays Laura Ferrari or Laura. And uh, he's cheating her with Sheila Woodley, who was so good in The Descendants. But I didn't find either of those relationships particularly enjoyable. I didn't find any of the characters particularly likable. And as far as the pursuit of the film, I didn't think the plot had much in terms of forward motion, which is ironic to say about a movie called Ferrari, which you would think would be burning up the screen. Unfortunately, it's a disappointment for me. I'll give it to Maple Leafs. And lastly, the zone of interest. The Commandant of Auschwitz. Rudolf Haas and his wife, Hedwig, strive to build a dream life for their family in a house and garden next to the camp. It comes from Jonathan Glazer, who directed it and co-wrote the book. I was sent the book, as a matter of fact, of all the things I've received here as being a member of the Critics' Choice. And it's a movie which has got rave reviews. The LA Film Critics called it the best picture of the year. I think it's probably going to get nominated for the best picture of the year from the Academy Awards. And it certainly is a movie that is unsettling. It's based on a true story about the fact that Next to literally the camps in Auschwitz where Jews are being murdered and burned, they would have these communities. So imagine like a white picket fence, bright green grass, tomatoes being planted, a German family just living their life. And in the background, you can hear the screams of people being murdered and slaughtered and, and assaulted. It's 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 almost too creepy to be believed, but that is exactly what happened uh, if this story is to be believed. Sandra Hewler, who I raved about in Anatomy of a Fall, she might get nominated for Supporting Actress. She's terrific playing Hedwig Haas, and the lead character in this instance is Christian Friedel, who plays Rudolf Haas. My quibble with the film is that in showing the banality of evil, I think at times the film feels a little banal. I would have liked a little more plot within the story because I just found it a little bit uh, dry at times. But the undercurrent of the film is impossible to ignore, which is that you have the balance of really evil, as venal as it gets and as sick and twisted as it can be. And if people are trying to live just a normal suburban life, they're just raising their kids. You know, there's a familiar domestic dispute about the fact that the husband has to leave for work. Where is he going for work? Oh, uh, Hitler is transferring him, actually. And that becomes a problem with a husband and wife. So I can see the allegory he's making that a story like this 
could still happen today. But I'm just saying as a film, as quote unquote entertainment, it didn't always hold my interest. That's why I'm giving it two and a half Maple Leafs. Having said that, Glazer certainly is a terrific filmmaker and um, it's definitely a movie that will stay with you. There's no doubt about that. Kyle Smith of Wall Street Journal. It depicts no violence and barely even shows any Jews being menaced. Yet it's lacerating. A master class, not a show without showing. I mean, the reviews are unbelievable. It comes out in theaters this Friday. Jocelyn Novak, Associated Press. In his meticulous and harrowing film, The Zone of Interest, writer-director Jonathan Glazer has found a way to convey evil without ever depicting the horror itself. But though it escapes our eyes, the horror assaults our senses in other deeper ways. And Richard Brody of New Yorker, the filmmaker appears to want it both ways, to make subtle allusions that are given meaning by vehement jolts to avoid specifics while pounding out generalized emotions. All right, those are all your reviews. Once again, to recap, The Iron Claw, I'm giving four Maple Leafs. I think I said three and a half earlier. I'm going four. Screw it. The Boys in the Boat, I'm giving one and a half. Leave the World Behind, two and a half. Ferrari gets two, and the Zone of Entrance gets two and a half. Now it's time for a four Maple Leaf guest. Well, who says social media doesn't have at least one good thing going for it? I post how American Fiction is one of my favorite movies of the year, and then I get a lovely message from actor John Ortiz, who says, thanks so much, brother. Watch all the time on MLB Network. And I said, this can't be the John Ortiz, <laughs> who I love from Carlito's Way and his association with Philip Seymour Hoffman. I said, you're going to come on my podcast. And your response was, I've never done a podcast, but here's my publicist's name. And sure enough, here you are. So thank you. For, first and foremost, this is your first podcast, John. This is great. This is my first ever podcast, and uh, I trust you wholeheartedly. Please handle with care. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm. Uh, I'm really psyched to be here. Thanks. Uh, thanks. Thanks for having me. So I don't know if Wikipedia is to be trusted, but is your son's name really Clemente? It is. Yeah, it's Clemente. Okay. You know, named after the incomparable, amazing humanitarian and not too shabby of a baseball player, Roberto Clemente. Of the Pittsburgh Pirates. I'm Puerto Rican. Right. My wife is half Puerto Rican. So I mentioned it to my wife and she was like, oh, that's interesting. That's great. And so I was like 99% in with naming him Clemente. And then the other percent was just, I just wanted to make sure if it didn't mean something kind of shady, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> so I did my research and just, uh, uh, just to be sure. And sure enough, you know, it kind of comes from clemency and forgiveness, which is a beautiful thing. So he's Clemente. I love it, man. You know, his nickname is Momentito. And so I said to my wife at one point, we had a cool name to have Moment, M-O-M-E-N. And actually, I have a cousin who is, his son's name is Moment. So I said, you know, if you're a real Clemente fan, you know, Momentito, Moment, I'm like, yeah. But I love the fact that your wife was on board. Once you said she was half Puerto Rican, I go, that makes sense. Like, I think if she yeah. doesn't have the shared ancestry, maybe raising more of an eyebrow, like, wait, wait, Clemente, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, we, we, uh, we took him to visit my grandfather when he was a newborn, and he lived in, or in Orlando. And um, I thought my grandfather was going to love the name. He was like in his you know, final days there, you know, he was yeah. in bed rest and we, and we hand him Clemente and he holds him and he's admiring him and he's telling us, you know, oh, he's so beautiful. So what'd you name him? What's his name? And I'm like, Clemente. And he's like, ah, oh, lo mataron con ese nombre. 
which translates to you killed them with that name. <laughs> <laughs> but my producer, Chris Cody, is nodding as well. Chris, you think that's too much pressure to put on a kid, right? You're calling him Clement. It's like calling the kid Mickey Mantle. Mickey, Babe Ruth. And Chris, I actually cursed him because uh, um, when it comes to baseball, at least, because uh, he's not as into it as I am. But that was going to be my follow-up. That happens sometimes, too. You give a kid a sports name, and all of a sudden, he couldn't care less about baseball. Like, what do you mean? This no. is my heart and joy. Doesn't yeah, care. Yeah, yeah, he played, uh He played two seasons of Little League, and he was like, that's it. Um, but luckily, he's a good kid. He's a senior in high school, and he wants to be a pilot. Oh, so wow. he's flying planes right now. He just took his first solo flight a couple of weeks ago, and I was um, nervous, Nelly. And uh, but oh, he but, did all right, and that's what he wants to do. He wants but to be this a is pilot. Bringing the story full circle. Clemente, of course, tragically died in a plane crash while giving humanitarian supplies in Nicaragua. So you know what? This actually, the name yeah. actually really fits that. This is pretty cool. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but uh, you're right. All right, American fiction, brilliant. Uh, I have it my number four, my top ten movies of the year. I have it as the funniest comedy of the year. It's the best satire I've seen in a long time. I think Jeffrey Wright is so great because he's one of those actors. Every time you see me, you go, this guy's great. And he's always, I see him in a lot of dramas, but to see him doing comedy, your scenes together, for those who don't know, haven't seen it, John plays the agent. And basically the story is Monk has written a novel which... Nobody wants to read because it doesn't have the true black stereotypes. So he writes one with Ebonics and the N-word and single mom and drugs. And you, classic agent, call, hey, I got great news. We got 750 <laughs> grand. It's not for the novel you care about. It's the one that, you know, the trash novel. Whatever, it's all working good. Um, what inspiration did you take for that role? Are there agents you've known like that? Is there someone that you kind of drew on for inspiration? Yeah, a few. You know, I've met a few. So, you know, I grab a little here and a little there and uh, and it kind of all adds up. But honestly, with this one, I didn't have a lot of time to do my research, which I love doing. I love like digging in and going through the weeds with with the with the character, especially if they have like a job that I know nothing about. Um, I actually played a horse racing trainer once and I'd never been to the track. Wow. Um, and once I found out how foreign the world was to me, I found the trainer that the character was based on, convinced him to let me work there. And I worked for a good couple of months from four in the morning until 10 every day uh, just uh, just to learn it. So I love that stuff. But with this guy, luckily, I had some some experience with agents. Um, but I didn't have a lot of research and, and we didn't have a lot of rehearsal time. In fact, uh, I knew Jeffrey from uh, years ago back in New York doing the uh, theater. Uh, so I've known Jeffrey for over 20 years. So that was a blessing. But in terms of the script and, you know, t going over the, the dialogue and that stuff, um, we didn't have time. Um, and so I leaned heavily on 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 the personal connection between the agent and his client, you know? Yeah. And and that's something that I've been with my agent for like, I don't know, 15 years. I've been with oh. my manager for 25 years. Wow. And that's the thing that's like, like that's the intangible stuff because the bottom line business part of it, you kind of mm -hmm. get, you just want to sell, you got to pay bills, you know, that's, that's not too hard to comprehend. But the other stuff is a little more nuanced and it's really kind of what matters, you know, with, 
why is it that this guy, this Asian is with this writer who doesn't sell any books, <laughs> you know? So well, that's what I love because so, your yeah. agent seems to have integrity. Like, yes, he wants to make money. He wants the bottom line, but he's stuck with this guy. Like you said, his novel yeah. is used to do. If there's one great team where you explain to him, listen, your novels are great, but nobody wants them. <laughs> You've got to write something that sells. Yeah, 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 exactly. You know, because he, he, he like the thing that, uh, that the the argument is that is that there's not just like when it comes to art or life you right this mm -hmm. there's not just one thing you know there's many different colors to everything and so when it comes to his book and what he's writing he's so talented and this is the thing like he mm -hmm. believes in himself in, in him so much and he has so much respect for his art that he knows the agent deep mm. down inside that he's capable of doing anything so why not do the thing that's a little more commercial that'll help you out and you're going mm. through some 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 financial uh, 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 challenges with needing to take care of his mother and that's another great part of the film yes. Um, is the family part and how this is a guy who for all of his life has been running away from his family and kind of shunning them and one thing leads to to another but he's now he's now confronted with having to finally deal with his siblings to deal mm. with his with his mom who's who's um who's facing some real health problems and and which translates to money problems so he's got to sell he's got to sell this book we have to make a deal so why not like you're capable and on top of that and this is where the comedy comes in for the folks who don't know mm -hmm. he doesn't have to put his name on it <laughs> he he wrote it under a pseudonym so so right. you know who cares <laughs> you know like it's not it's not gonna hurt your brand bro <laughs> just sell it um and but the comedy comes in of course when he's got to actually put on the persona yeah. of this made-up fictitious person that apparently wrote this book tell Who's me this about the scene when you're talking to the publisher and jeffrey's talking to him and he starts talking in his normal voice articulate well-mannered you go no no hey, hey you know <laughs> <laughs> like talk like a hood you know what i mean like tell yeah. me about that scene with jeffrey how you guys played with that well that was great i mean the, we the director core jefferson who's amazing this was his first film that he's ever directed which is like kind of mind-blowing yeah. and a bit of a miracle um but he wrote this beautiful script but those scenes were so funny as they were but there was a lot in between when it came to um, to uh, putting on that voice that relied a little bit on improv. Mm. So in a lot of those moments when he needs to, over the phone, just audibly convince the publisher that he's this convict who's on the run from the law, <laughs> you know, and like you said, he's like upper middle class, he's a little bougie, you know, yeah. um, he's got to put on this persona of this of this tough guy who's from the inner city, you know, and who may not talk like, you know, a guy who graduated from wherever he went to school. Uh, and 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 so and so he's he's what's interesting is that Jeffrey um did it like he could do it really well. Like Jeffrey's right. an amazing actor who can do anything, but but Monk probably he made the choice that monk cannot do it as well as jeffrey wright so he yeah. does this wonderful thing with 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 making mistakes mm. 
you know so like <laughs> even at the dinner with the hollywood producer he orders you know when <laughs> when there's a drink order uh he orders some fancy white wine you know and that's like oh wait a minute i wasn't expecting someone like you to order white wine at dinner you know uh <laughs> Uh, so 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 we played with each other and 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 uh, and improv did and there's a lot of physical comedy and 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 Jeffrey and I because we've known each other for 20 25 years just felt really comfortable with 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 going there and making big bold choices and like just playing which is essentially what acting is all about right it's just like becoming kids again. I uh, interviewed Billy Bob Thornton once. He was telling me, he said, you never know when a film's going to do well. You kind of have an idea when a film's not going well. Like, he's like, you're, you're, you're. <laughs> That's true. That's right? True. He, goes, yeah. he goes, you may not get along, but the film may turn out well. He goes, but if, if you're just like, this movie's not working, he goes, you, you kind of have a feeling. But when it works, yeah. Yeah. You, you're thrilled. You know, uh, yeah, yeah. And I'm, and I'm totally going through life right now with, like, holding my expectations at check and really, you know, it seems like the older I get, the less I know or the less I want to know, you know, and I'm just trying to make the, the most of every day. And with what we do, you really don't know. I I think the opposite is also true. Like when when you have something that may not feel so great, you know, because of whatever reasons, mostly is tied to your own insecurities and your own <laughs> shortcomings. It turns out to be not as bad as you thought, you know, and it's just made up, made up little crises that you put in your brain, you know, yeah. it's like, dude, that wasn't, that wasn't terrible at all. You're being too, too hard on yourself, you know, or you're being too hard on others, you know, it's, it's actually kind of really beautiful. Um, and there have been cases where I know, uh, uh, you mentioned Phil, um, in the beginning when he was working mm -hmm. on before the devil knows you're dead the, yeah, the sydney lamette film that movie i remember when he shot it and i was very interested in it because you know it was sydney lamette and he was having a tough time and it was confirmed when he saw the first cuts of it the film wasn't working and it was just like how is that possible you know and sure enough sydney even admitted it and they delayed the release because Sydney truly believed that there was a movie in there. And he just didn't do any reshoots, but just continuously re-edited it in post for over a year. And so the final cut was something that was always in there and he just needed to, to cut it a certain way to make it sing the way it did. Wow, that's amazing. Let's talk more about Philip Seymour Hoffman. When I worked at ESPN, there was this one theater downtown Hartford, Bowtie Cinemas. You can find the indie movies, foreign films, docs, all the movies that I love. So Jack Goes Boating comes out. And I said, oh, my God, Philip Seymour Hoffman is one of my favorite actors. I go see it. And you're amazing. And the Independent Spirit Award was phenomenal. That experience must have been so extraordinary. Of course, it was based in a play, but of course, only movie that Phil directed. And obviously, so sad now that he's no longer with us. But tell me everything about that experience and what really, I think, for many people who saw it know that that's john ortiz at his best oh thank you yeah that's when people ask me what's my favorite movie that i've worked on that's usually at the top of the list um and it's because of not only phil but the way we the whole trajectory of that film um the first time it was introduced to us was a member of our theater company bob glaudini 
said, I got a couple of scenes and I have this idea. And when we did our retreat, we read it for the first time and uh, in front of the company. Um, and it was one of those experiences that just felt really good, you know, and I remember Phil needing to leave town as soon as it was over. So I walked him to his car and we were just sharing with each other how how cool that reading was. It was just a reading. It was like four chairs and a bare stage in front of 20 people. And, and but we were really jazzed about it. And right before he gets in the car, he turns to me, he's like, he, he says, uh, that was fun. I really love acting with you. And, um, and those characters were best friends, you know? And in fact, there's like, you know, they're, my character's married. I'm trying to hook him up with this, with this mutual friend. But, and so there's two love stories there, but then there's the third love story of just male friendship. And so it was like really deep for us to, to um, pursue that. And then the writer finished the play. We had a run of it in New York and it was probably the only play that the theater company did that, that actually made money. Wow. <laughs> like, like we're, you know, we're lucky to break even and that's why we do it. You know, it's a not-for-profit. It's about just doing it. Um, uh, but that one, there were lines outside the theater, you know, and so we knew we had something special and the writer, unbeknownst to us, was writing the screenplay while we were performing the show during wow. its run. And so towards the end of the run, <laughs> He hands us the screenplay and we read it and we're like, first of all, surprised. But then we thought as we were reading it, like, this is like, this isn't as good as the play. You know, this, like, he's really trying just to like make a movie, quote unquote, of this. And like, I think he's shortchanging how cinematic the play is. Um, and so we asked him to that that we're all for it but maybe he should he should um rethink some things mm -hmm. so the following summer we went to the same retreat that we had when we first read those those pages with the four chairs on the bare stage in front of 20 people and before the normal schedule started which was at 10 a.m we would wake up at 6 and between 6 30 and 7 and 10 we would go through the screenplay that he had written and revise it. And so the three of us, I mean, the writer wrote it, but the three mm -hmm. of us kind of developed it into a new version of the screenplay. And luckily the producers, Big Beach, um, had their offices a block away from the public theater where, where we did the play and they loved the play. And when they found out that there was a movie that was being developed about it, they were all in. So everything happened super fast and Phil just wanted to direct it, um, but we couldn't find an actor. Because of course, if you, you see Phil in anything, it's impossible to think of anyone else playing that role. Mm -hmm. And that was the case. I mean, we, we went to some pretty amazing actors that a lot of people know. Like, you know, so it wasn't an issue of like, they're not famous enough, you know, it was just an issue of like, they're not Philip Seymour Hoffman. So right. he didn't want to act in it, and it took it took it took a little convincing, but we ultimately convinced him to 
act and direct. Um, but he then said, okay, I'll do it, but we need to add at least another week onto the schedule because um, I've never directed before and I'm going to be uh, needing that extra time. Which is amazing because he would direct a lot of plays. I remember reading that stuff, but as you're right, directing a film is much, much different. But what, that's partly what I admire so much about you, him, uh, Ethan Hawke, Sam Rockwell. Like You get these guys who are movie stars. You guys are great actors, but you love doing the stage just for the art of it. And when he passed, they're like, that's the big thing about Phil. I think it was Rockwell said, he goes, listen, he could be a little moody. You know, he get a little grumpy sometimes. He's like, I'll be honest. He said, but Phil was such a committed actor, man. Like, and he goes, he just, he just, he loved it so much. He really, he goes, I'm not being melodramatic. He really was an artist because he was so passionate. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I never met anyone who was so unrelenting and uncompromising when it came to the pursuit of truth, you know, and that's something that 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 is, I guess, easier said than done. But like when it comes to like being 100% committed to being honest, yeah, when you're acting, especially and and in this business, when when push comes to shove, it's really difficult and you just kind of take whatever you can get. And it's just like, you know, the, the, the clock is ticking and it's like, all right, that's good enough. You know, with Phil, nothing was good enough, but like excellence. And he was like, like I said, he was truly uncompromising when it came to it. And that's where Sam Pauly uh, got the moody part from, you know, because, you know, it's, it ain't easy. <laughs> <laughs> I can keep you all day, but I'll get you a couple more. Carlito's Way. Let me take you back to 93. I mean, that's one of the great gangster movies, the great Pacino movies coming off the Oscar, playing a Puerto Rican, Carlito Pregante, Sean Penn, unrecognizable as Davy Kleinfeld. He's so funny. What do you remember since working with a legend in Brian De Palma and a legend in Al Pacino? Oh, man, that was that was my feature film debut. Wow. Didn't know that. It, that's amazing. it started there and then... It all went downhill from there, my friend. <laughs> Here we are, 30 years later, Here talking we to me. Are in my garage. Uh, <laughs> um, nah, it was, I, I mean, I was, I was like a, you know, a kid in the candy store, as they say. You know, I was so stoked. Pacino, De Palma, Sean Penn, and, uh, and uh, I was just, I felt so excited, lucky to get that part. And um, I got a million stories about it. My, I'll try, I'll try to keep this one short, but um, but it's not too short no, of take a your story. Time. Uh, take your time. But it's my, it's my death scene. And there's a pool hall. <clears throat> and there's the pool halls. My final shot, right? That you see the character, and it's uh, this, the the final shot is a very complicated crane shot that starts with Pacino. Calito Brigante in the bathroom and he's got the famous you know all right I'm reloading I'm reloading yeah 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 you want to play big time you're gonna die, you're gonna die big time, big time. Yeah, right, yeah. it starts it starts tight on him with that and then yeah. he kicks the door open and you see in the background a body lying in a pool of blood and that's me right. and the camera pushes in on that and he as the camera almost discovers the body and pays his respect to his dying cousin. Right. Well, I was drinking coffee all day and we, and we shot that at like eight o'clock at night. And the reason why I was drinking coffee all day, because I had prosthetics and I needed to, after working till 11 o'clock at night or midnight, be on set 
in less than six hours. So mm -hmm. I had like three, four hours of sleep so that they can put all this makeup on me. And that was happening for a good three days. So this was the last of the, the third and final day of this schedule. And I was just like, you know, I was 23. I thought I could do it all. So I wasn't really, you know, taking care of my body the way I probably should have. So I was relying a lot on caffeine to keep me up. And he also needed to be very energetic. And he's the young, yeah. innocent guy, you know, and, <laughs> and the, you know, the kid. So when it comes to that shot, as the camera is pulling in tight on me, and it's a super close-up of me, Brian De Palma would yell, cut, right before Pacino's final line, which is, you said there were friends, there are no friends in this business, primo. And I would wonder why he was yelling cut so often before that line and found out that after the fourth time he said cut, and it's a complicated setup that would take a good 15, 20 minutes to, to do, it was because my eyes were blinking as they were shut from the from the jittery <laughs> nerves that the I coffee. had from the coffee. <laughs> Dude, so I couldn't keep them shut. And Pacino realized this after Brian De Palma told him, you know what, we're gonna alter the shot. I won't I won't go down on him. I'll just stay tight on you mm. and you could just say the line. Because not only was it getting late, but Pacino had to catch a flight to L.A. for the Oscars. Oh, my God. It was the weekend before the Oscars. And Pacino, uh, when he heard that, because I'm lying on the pool and I'm not moving. I can't move. I'm, I'm in all this fake blood, right? So I'm just mm. lying there. And I'm kind of like really nervous. I'm like, man, I'm that's my moment you know i'm gonna be fired you know they hate me i suck i can't keep my <laughs> eyes shut i'm so i'm just supposed to be playing dead and i can't even do that <laughs> you know all those things are raised you know and that's not helping you know but uh, but i'm very curious as to like what other people are thinking and you know this is my first movie and so i heard that and i was just like oh man it just killed me and pacino says you know what just clear the set and give me five minutes. And De Palma's like, what? And he's like, yeah, just, just, I want everyone out of the room. And so the whole crew leaves and I'm just like, I guess I should get up from this pool of blood I'm in. So I'm starting to like move to get up. And he's like, no, no, no Johnny, stay, stay. And I'm like, okay, yeah, sure. And, and he's like, yeah, I'm just like, I'm just, you know, I just kind of had enough with these guys or whatever. I'd, I think I just need uh, an espresso. Um, I'm going to order an espresso. Do you want an espresso? <laughs> I'm like, it's the last thing I want, bro. But it's Al Pacino offering me a, an espresso. And it's just me. Yeah. I'm like, you know, it, it's he's not offering an espresso to anyone else but me. I can't say no. So I'm like, yeah, sure. I'd love an espresso. <laughs> so... He sends out and like everything from my perspective with him and that whole experience was like the most amazing thing. Like it's the coolest thing, like anything yeah. that anyone said or whatever. So like him asking his assistant to bring him espresso, I thought was like, why it doesn't get cooler than that. 
Mm-hmm. Like you just order espresso and in five minutes and espresso comes. <laughs> so five minutes later, an espresso comes. But I'm now thinking, I hope he's not holding this all up for me because he's got a flight to catch and all this, right? I'm like worried about his his itinerary to get <laughs> to the Oscars. But I'm trying to be cool, right? Because I'm having an espresso without Pacino. So I'm there. I'm just like trying to fake it. You know, I'm trying to suppress all of these crazy, wild thoughts I have and trying to be cool with him. And just like, I don't know what was said between us, but we had this espresso and he cleared it all up and he brought, he asked his assistant to bring the crew in and they all come in and we do the shot again. And the whole timing works out. I reloaded, the camera pushes in and my internal clock knows when I'm going to hear Brian De Palma very angrily yell cut. And it's getting to that moment. It's getting to that moment. And it's real quiet. And it doesn't happen. And it continues. And we push past that moment. And I hear Al Pacino breathe. And then he utters those lines. And then he does something with my face. But there's some contact there. And I'm like, holy shit, this is happening. But don't get too excited and blink your eyes right now. <laughs> and he goes and they yell cut. And the Palma says, we got it. And everyone applause. <laughs> and then f- the last thing I'll say is I'm still lying there. And everyone is sending, you know, is giving Pacino his good wishes and, and wishing him luck for the Oscars and all that. And and I see him in the distance as he's leaving the room. And I'm still lying down. And he turns around as he's walking out the door. This sounds like a scene from like Field of Dreams. Like literally Ray Liotta yeah. is walking <laughs> off and he goes, hey, rookie, you were yeah. good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Like Ray of the Burt Lancaster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, well, he t- he he's almost out the door. He turns around and he tells everyone, if I win them both, I ain't coming back. (laughs) And he just leaves. And I was like, that guy is the coolest human being in the history of the planet. Because, of course, he was nominated for Best Actress in the Moment, but also Supporting Actor, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. If I win them both, I ain't coming back. Yeah, yeah. Great story. Actually, was uh, was it Dick Tracy? No, Dick Tracy was the year before. He was in. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. All right, the double cool. nominee was Glenn Gary. knows his Pacino. No, no, yeah. But- yeah. I'm impressed, man. You well, know, you know your movies. Well, you know, I, I, I saw that post on social media and like, I've known you from, from the sports world and I'm a huge sports geek, you know? And, yeah. and then I thought, cause I have actor friends and movie friends that don't quite know about American fiction yet. You know, it's, right. it's still a relatively small film. And, and so when I, saw that you saw it and then i was like oh wow this guy's this guy's a a real deal movie guy you know i was uh i was super impressed so it shouldn't surprise me uh your knowledge of mr pacino you you calling him a real deal movie guy is anything is better than anything you could say about baseball with him like you just made his week yeah the baseball (laughs) stuff i've I've established for 20 plus years the movie credentials john if you can know that it's funny i remember entertainment weekly had a cover after it said pacino's way when carlito's way came out that fall and they said when he won the oscar he got a standing ovation on the set when he came back so that that, yeah all all those memories stand very fresh yeah 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 i actually was there um i wasn't scheduled to work but I went to the set that day 
It was a night. Uh, I think night it was a shoot. shoot. It was at night. It was raining and the stuff. Night, was yeah, that, yeah, 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 yeah. It was yeah. raining. They had uh, they had rain uh, rain machines, and there right. was this bar I used to hang out at, and it was a couple of blocks from the set. And I walked over there, and uh, and so I was there. And w and what was cool is that he, I didn't like, I didn't infiltrate the center of it all. I kind of stayed in the. But he saw me from across the street, and it was so cool. He actually. He actually waved at me and said, hey, Johnny, oh. you know, and I'm like, hey, congratulations. <laughs> you have any espresso? <laughs> but I'm 100% with you. You couldn't have turned that down. Like, it's either risk the ire of Brian De Palma or say yeah. no to Al Pacino. I'm like, no, I'll, just, yeah. I'll have to risk it. De Palma fires uh, me. That's fine. I'm not going to say yeah. no to Al Pacino. Yeah, of course. So, 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 so you said that. Uh, American fiction is like in top four. What are the other three? So I've got Killers of the Flower Moon at one. I've Great got film, the huh? hold. Oh my God, Scorsese, another level. Amazing. Um, I've got the holdovers at two. I, I love Giamatti. He's amazing. Yeah. Number yeah. three, I have Oppenheimer. Oh and yeah. Four, <clears throat> and number four, I have American right. fiction. I got Poor nice. Things at five, which is also just bizarre. Poor Things is, yeah. That that's that's a. That's a pretty. I love him as a filmmaker, and that one yes. he's taken to a whole other level. It's amazing. Yeah, when you think um, of like how hard it is to make an original film, like you're talking Frankenstein and feminism and all these different yeah. ideas. Like, and, and Ruffalo was unbelievable. I've never seen him like that. This devilish yeah, yeah. cat and the dance sequence is so funny. It's, he's it's so great. Yeah, it was I a saw. Year. I saw. I saw Oppenheimer um, recently, and I saw. Thank God, I saw it at, uh, on the IMAX. Yes, but that was some experience, man. Oh, that was that was uh that was kind of a brilliant film. Yeah, it's definitely been um, a strong year for movies. That's the biggest thing I say. People say, "Oh, you know, what do you watch on TV?" I said, "No, I still love movies. The podcast yeah. is stuff and movies are still, as you said, if you can watch it in that environment in the theater, no phone on, locked in, it's yeah. the best." Yeah, 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 absolutely. And and I'm so, I'm so uh, uh, I'm excited that American Fiction is only available in theaters because it's yes. it's 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 kind of special to watch it with for those audience. reasons like yes. yeah and i think a big part of it is about community you know and family you know and like and there's so many different things happening and of course laughter and there's like there's nothing like being in a room with like a crowd of people laughing you know it's awesome all right last thing i gotta tell you my pacino story now so he came to connecticut and joy behar interviewed him of all people like listen i should be giving my left arm here to interview him like i know everything about al but it's Joy Behar, which is fine. So they do the hour and a half of stories. It's always the same story. Hey, where did who all come from? And, you know, how did Coppola cast in The Godfather? And, you know, the, the same stories he always tells them. But they're always funny. Scarface, he burns his hand to blah, 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 blah. Anyways, it's 250 if you just want to listen to Al. But it's like 500 if you want to meet him. So obviously, I said to my wife, no, no, we're paying the 500. We got to meet him. So as they're waiting in line, the woman in front of me <laughs> is like starting to hyperventilate. And she's like, oh my God. I go, no, I know. It's, it's Al Pacino. Like, it's, trust me, I, I'm, I'm right there with it. She's like, no, I, I don't know if I can do this. And I was like, yeah, no, this, we're all Uber fans, obviously. Like, take it easy. It's all right. And she goes, no, look. And she, I, she shows me her calf. And it's like a full scale Pacino, Tony Montana Scarface tattoo. Like, she's like, like you don't know what a big fan I'm like, okay, well, I, I don't have a tattoo of him on me, but trust me, I, I also love Dog Day Afternoon. Try, I don't have a tattoo, but I, trust me, I'm there with you. Anyway, so I'm like, she goes in, I can hear his voice like booming. And I can hear her like crying. And I go, how am I going to follow this? Oh my God. So I go in and I just go, hey, Al, how are you? I'm like, and I said, just kind of like with you, I said, you know, he'll appreciate it if I mention a film, not everyone is saying. 
Not everyone's mentioning Jack Goes Boating to you. So I'm going to mention him because he's directed a few films. I'll mention Chinese Coffee, which I saw at the Toronto Film Festival, which, as you mentioned, American Fiction won the People's Choice Award, uh, People's Award there, which is a very prestigious prize. I said, I'll mention that. At least they'll get a reaction. Like, hey, Chinese Coffee, you and Jerry Orbach, amazing. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> you know, I get excited, whatever. And then I said, you know, and I said, I'm a huge sports guy. Ali's like, yeah. And I, I, I mean, I know you're from the Bronx. You follow the Yankees. Sports goes, oh, no, sports, sports. I, I love sports. And I'm like, yeah, really? He goes, how about that guy right now? And it was during the NBA Finals. And I go, uh, Steph Curry. He's like, oh, yeah, he just, he just glides. <laughs> <laughs> and the way he said it, same as you, I go, he's the coolest yeah. guy ever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's awesome. He just glides. He just glides. Yeah, so yeah. You got paid to work with him. I had to pay for that experience, but it was still amazing. Um, this yeah, was amazing man. <laughs> John That's Ortiz, awesome. I love your it. first ever podcast. Thanks so much for doing this, man. I feel like we could uh, go to a ball game together and do this all day, but I'm, I'm respectful of your time. Everyone, go see American Fiction. It's a brilliant film. John's brilliant in the movie, and uh, I hope this is the first of many podcasts. And who is your baseball yeah. team, obviously? The Yankees. The Yankees guy. Well, you yeah. got Juan Soto now, so you should be feeling oh, pretty good man. about that. He's oh, a stud. That what a great fit, right? Left-handed like power hitter. Uh, I mean, we I really needed a lefty. That's short. As soon porch. as I saw him put the Yankee hat on, I go, "That is like truly born to be a Yankee." Like yeah. Soto Judge back to back. I'm like, "That's going to be a good time in the yeah, box." Yeah, that's awesome. Well, hopefully, uh, um, I'm uh, hoping I have a a pretty exciting year. So I got a couple of other projects coming out. Um, yeah, let us know what else uh, you got going on. Feel yeah. free to pub. What else do you got? Well, um, I have a Apple series coming out called Bad Monkey. Okay. Um, which I'm really excited about. Vince Vaughn is the lead in it. I, I play his best friend. Nice. Um, and it takes place in the Keys. Uh, and it's just a really kind of dark humor, like really out there eccentric characters, you know, where he, uh, he plays a, a, a detective um, uh, who's just goes on these crazy cases. Um, and his life is kind of falling apart. And Vince is just amazing in it. And I'm finishing up a project which was cut short because of the strike, but we're going to go back next month to finish it up uh, for Ma uh, for Netflix called nice. Madness. Yeah, okay. and that's with Coleman Domingo, another oh my another Rustin, actor who's geez, gonna, he was yeah. great in that movie, wasn't he? Oh yeah. Well, uh, Coleman plays uh, the lead in um, in in the Madness. It's called, okay. and that'll be out probably in in uh, in the fall. Last Clemente story I have to tell you. So Tim Kirchin, my dear friend, of course, you know, from ESPN for many yeah. years, he does uh, a list. So each, you reminded me when you mentioned Poznanski's top 100. So uh, Kirchin did each number, who's the best number of that player, right? So number five, the greatest ever is DiMaggio. Number seven, Mickey Mantle, et cetera. So he said the most contentious one, the one he received hate mail. People were furious. 21. 21. He picked Warren Spahn. And wow. he said, Warren Spahn has the most wins of any left-handed pitcher in baseball. He's 363. I said, Tim, how do you not put Clemente? Because every Puerto Rican will never speak to you ever again. <laughs> Thanks for telling me that, because if I ever run into him, that's the first thing I'm going to say. Like, Just Warren light him Spahn, up. Warren Spahn, come on. <laughs> yeah, sure. All right, fine. But come on. <laughs> Oh, it's going to happen one day. Bad Monkey, mm -hmm. The Madness, and of course, American Fiction right now in theaters. John Ortiz. This was awesome, man. I can't thank you enough. This was great. Yeah, I had a great time. Thank you. Uh, and I look forward to uh, seeing you on the diamond one day or yes. back here and talking some more movies with you. Yeah, we're either going to have you on MLB Network or we're going to be at a game together. But this is going to happen now. I love it. So sounds good. All right. 
Awesome. Take care, Thanks guys. Thanks so much, John. Be well. Thank you. Thank Bye-bye. you, John. Take care. Thanks, Chris. Take care. Happy holidays. You yeah, too, happy man. holidays, man. All right. Thanks once again to John Ortiz. He was amazing. I got to go watch the Yankees game with him at the very least have him on MLB Network. Have him come to the studio. Him and Clemente. It'll be great. Thanks as always to Chris Cody, my outstanding producer. Thanks to the entire team at Battle Arc. I'm going to Barry Sampson one more time. Lots of great films coming up uh, in the new year. I'll watch Saltburn, which is up for Best Picture at the Critics' Choice Awards. And also, I believe it's up for a Golden Globe, a couple of Golden Globe nominees. So looking forward to watching that film. And I'm sure lots more that I'll be able to watch the next couple of weeks. I appreciate all of you and your support here on Cinephile over 300 episodes. Let's keep it going and I'll see you next year at the movies.